You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Michael A. Tompkins and Monique Thompson. Uh, they have many, many accolades, which we'll get into. We're going to be talking about insomnia. They're both uh, co-authors of the Insomnia Workbook for Teens, Skills to Help Stop Stressing and Start Sleeping Better. And uh, I'll get into their bios in just a second. But uh, Michael and Monique, thank you for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, uh, if you would, can you uh, give me a brief background of your bio. I could see, you know, from what I have here that uh, both of you have extremely extensive uh, backgrounds. So Mike, if you can uh, go into yours first and then Monique, I'd like to hear about you. Yeah, I'll just hit the high points. Um, I'm uh, co-director of the San Francisco Bay Area Center for Cognitive Therapy here in Oakland, California. Um, I'm also board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology by the American Board of Professional Psychology and assistant clinical professor at the University of California at Berkeley. and I have published a number of books and been the co-author of a number of books. And the latest one is the Insomnia Workbook for Teens that I had the great pleasure to write with Monique, who is uh, awesome. Um, and okay. I typically treat uh, uh, problems across a range of developmental ages from um, adults to kids. And insomnia, of course, presents um, a great deal. Most kids, most mm. teens who come in for help with anxiety or depression have sleep problems. Okay, makes sense. Would you say your involvement has been in the cognitive behavioral therapy world and insomnia is just a manifestation of that? Or is it has your focus been to help uh, people of all ages with sleep problems specifically? Um, no, um, I have been doing cognitive behavioral therapy for close to 30 years and um Primarily, I've treated anxiety and mood disorders. And of course, um, most people with an anxiety or mood disorder have sleep difficulties, and that includes kids and, and teens. It's only been in the last 10 to 15 years where we have uh, researchers have developed an evidence-based treatment for insomnia and applied it across the developmental age range, including you know, adolescents. And so... That's called CBTI or cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. And so I have been doing that evidence-based treatment for a number of years. 
So I guess it makes sense that um, if someone's troubled, if they're anxious and upset and depressed, that, you know, they lay down to try to go to sleep and they can't fall asleep and they, it takes them, you know, an hour, hours, or maybe they wake up multiple times. I mean, how does this, when someone has these uh, mental problems, how does that manifest in insomnia? What does the insomnia look like? What are the different types of insomnia they have? Well, uh, primary insomnia is basically defined as uh, difficulty going to sleep and staying asleep, which causes insufficient sleep or non-restorative sleep, um, meaning that people sleep, but they don't feel well-rested during the day. Um, There are a number of different sleep disorders, and insomnia is by far the most common. And uh, typically what happens for people, um, and this is really what uh, cognitive therapy for insomnia really uh, focuses on, is what tends to happen is that there is a normal, uh, we all have our sleep disrupted from time to time. Like if I do a long trip across the, the, the country, my sleep may be disrupted slightly, or if I'm in a you know stressful period, I'm, my sleep might be disrupted, um, or even if I'm, you know, in a uh, busy but not stressed, my sleep may be disrupted. So what happens in insomnia is that there is a kind of a typical sleep disruptor, such as stress or travel, and what then happens is that the person uh, starts to worry about their sleep, and in order to actually get enough sleep, they start changing their sleep habits. And once they start changing their sleep habits, they, these particular habits get in the way of sleep coming quickly and for them remaining asleep. And so what they, the, the most classic thing is that they tr- either try to go to bed earlier to get more sleep or they stay in bed longer in the morning to get more sleep. And one of the things that is the most critical to um, good sleep is to have a a standard lights out time and a standard get out of bed time. So what happens when people who who struggle with insomnia, what happens there is that those two posts that basically entrain our sleep structure start to move around. And so they're always trying to play catch up. They also then start to worry about their sleep. Um, And once that happens, then that also causes them to move into have a control attitude toward their sleep, which is trying to get to sleep versus waiting for sleep to come. So it seems like a, a you know, catch 22 and, and probably like a vicious cycle. So how do you intervene to help people? You know, what, what does it take in terms of them to, to uh, I mean, it seems like you could sit there and talk to them and do therapy, but then they go to lay down and they may think, oh no, I hope I fall asleep or I don't know, just yeah. get into this spiral, this rumination. This is what this is really what is quite different from cognitive behavioral therapy from normal traditional talk therapy um, is that we actually are focusing a great deal on both cognitive interventions and behavioral interventions, meaning that we're teaching certain skills. Um, and so one of the things, the, one of the first things that we do is we provide sleep education because a lot of people. Uh, don't really aren't really well educated about sleep, and they have certain misassumptions about sleep. Um, and so, providing that kind of correct education um, can often make people feel more hopeful and less anxious about their sleep. Another thing that we do is we actually start 
we train people to start keeping a sleep diary, which actually focuses on many of the parameters that we will target in the treatment. Uh, when they go to sleep, uh, how long it takes for them to go to sleep, do they awaken mid-phase in their sleep? If they do, what do they do to try to get back to sleep? How long are they awake? What what um, what do they do to try to get to sleep and stay asleep? Oftentimes, that's, that's sleep medications. And what the research tells us is <clears throat> cognitive therapy for insomnia is more effective than sleep medications. Um, they, uh, so we have them keep a sleep diary, and as part of that sleep diary, what we're doing is we're actually focusing on sleep efficiency rather than the quality or the quantity of sleep. Sleep efficiency is really the amount of time in bed asleep. And so what happens when you develop insomnia is that people are in bed a lot, but they're not always asleep while they're in bed. And so what we're trying to do then is, to, is also to shape certain factors that contribute to them to being awake while they're in bed. And these are often called stimulus control strategies, which is, you know, if they're not asleep in 10 minutes, they're to get out of bed, go to their waiting place, wait for sleep to come, then go back and try again. Um, we also teach okay. other strategies, lots and lots of skills. Well, we'll get into the other strategies shortly. Um, I know, you know, just like everyone else in the world, I've had problems sleeping sometimes and, you know, I've had to tell myself stuff like, you know, you've, you've fallen asleep every night for 40 some odd years. Why would you not fall asleep tonight? Or, you know, I learned about melatonin or blackout curtains or magnesium or, you know, can see, that's, that's or a really, kinds of strategy. Yeah. See, that's a really great example is that uh, everyone has sleep disruption, disru disruptions. And so what you also, what you're, what you were doing, uh, which is what we teach too, is you were teaching actually to actually talk yourself through the worries and anxieties you might have about not going to sleep or not staying asleep. And typically for people with insomnia who are worriers, they actually start getting hit by the what I call the triple whammy of sleep worry. First, they start worrying about everyday things. They tend to worry about their job. They tend to worry about uh, relationships. They worry about world events. That tends to keep them awake. Then if they're not sleeping well, they start to worry about if they're going to sleep, when they're going to go to sleep. And then the third worry is that then they start worrying about the consequences of not sleeping well on their day-to-day -day functioning. So there's a lot of worry that happens for people that maintains insomnia. And so we really also teach what we call cognitive skills to actually help them come up with calming thoughts and take a look at some of these worries, evaluate these worries, and, and kind of come up with calming self-talk that helps soothe them uh, while they're waiting for sleep to come, just like you you do. Okay. So what are some examples? Like, that was my example of what I do, but what are some examples that seem to work pretty well? Oh, well, the, the, the thing that... Uh, let me just circle back to that, because the thing that actually works the best um, for like 80% of people who come in with primary insomnia, one of the things that works the best is what we call sleep restriction, which is basically really getting them to actually stop trying to catch up on sleep, have a standard lights out time and a standard get out of bed time and helping them kind of work back until they are in bed as for as long as they actually need sleep. Having said that, when you're looking at sleep worries, some of the things that you're helping people do is, is to actually uh, teach them skills 
to help them feel more confident that they have something to do while they're waiting for sleep to come. So we might be teaching um, sleep. We might be teaching mindfulness meditation. We might be teaching calming breath. We might be teaching progressive muscle relaxation. We might be teaching something called savoring, which is basically uh, focusing on positive things, pleasant activities that have occurred during the day. These are basically eyes closed, waiting for sleep to come activities. The other thing we do in terms of looking at sleep worries is taking a look at the assumptions people have about um, uh, of how, how badly does not sleeping well affect your performance the next day. Most people tend to catastrophize um, uh, having inadequate sleep on their performance. They think that they won't perform well at all, um, which is simply not true. Um, we, there are many evolutionary advantages to being able to perform adequately, even if we're not well-rested. So we, we take a look at those kinds of assumptions as well. What about, um, I guess, future pacing and saying, you know, I'm laying in bed, I feel really comfortable, I've got a good bed, and I'm going to, you know, I have like eight hours, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up feeling really refreshed, and tonight I'm going to fall asleep really quickly. Like talking to yourself like that and telling yourself you're going to have a good sleep and telling yourself what's going to happen. Is that a strategy that well, may work? I, that, that, that could work for some people, but really what you want people to actually become more comfortable with and less anxious about is the possibility that sleep might not come. It probably will come. Uh, chances are sleep always comes. I mean, our minds are actually have evolved to sleep. Our minds do not require our help to sleep. So what happens for people is that when they get into a control attitude about their sleep, they try to convince themselves that they can get to sleep rather than saying, you know, sleep may come, sleep may not come tonight. If it doesn't come or it's delayed in coming, I'll probably be fine tomorrow. No need to worry. Let me just do some of these things while I wait for sleep to come. This is not a catastrophe. It is not the end of the world if, if I don't sleep well tonight. But really being able to actually tolerate the possibility of not sleeping well uh, is probably more important than trying to convince yourself that you're going to go to sleep. What, is there a, a sequence of things that happen as someone lays in bed and falls asleep? Like, you know, my experience is I'll lay there. Sometimes I'll start to feel tired and I go, oh, good. I'm feeling tired. And then the next thing I know, mm -hmm. I'm waking up. But I don't know, is it useful to know the stages people go through when they fall asleep? And is there anything you can do about them? Yeah, that's part of that's part of the, 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 the sleep science, the sleep education that we do with individuals with insomnia and, and teenagers, too. Um, you know, teaching them about what sleep is really about. Um, teaching them about the whole idea of arousability, mental arousability. Mental arousability is an active mind. You might not even be worrying, but you might be thinking about the day and what's going on, or you might be thinking that being very excited about something that's going to happen tomorrow. You're not worried, but you have a lot of mental activity. Or you might stream television shows right up to bedtime, and your mind is very alert and very active, and then you get into bed expecting that your mind is going to turn off for, for sleep to come. Our minds don't operate that way. Our minds with regard to arousability operate more like a dimmer switch where we are, our arousability slowly dims and then sleep comes. So what we, there are some things that we teach people to, to not do 
which are sleep disruptors, which is exercising too close to when you when you wish to go uh, uh, go to bed, uh, using screens or watching interesting or uh, arousing material on a screen, uh, engaged in activities that are uh, you know like exercise too close to bedtime, uh, what avoiding caffeine, anything that's going to actually amp up your mental activity is not something to be doing close to bedtime. And then there are other exercises that you can start doing to actually start to calm your mind. Um, and so the, the, the real, the critical piece is to give yourself, you know, early on kind of a wind down routine where you actually are signaling to your mind, I am preparing, it's time for sleep to start coming. Oftentimes what people do, particularly busy people, is they're busy right up into the moment that they're ready to go to bed. They turn out the light and then they expect their, their mind to calm down and sleep to come. That's not always the case. And if you are struggling with insomnia, it's almost guaranteed that's not going to happen. So building in wind down routines, building in um, uh, closed, uh, closed eyes activities, all as part of like signaling your mind that you are ready for sleep to come. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, your workbook was for teens. Was that because you just like to help younger people or is it because they have unique sleep problems versus everyone else? I, uh, I, well, there are, uh, there are a couple of reasons why Monique and I wrote a book for teens. One is there was never, there isn't a book out for teens with insomnia. There, this is the first one. Um, so, we we recognize a very unique niche to, that we could fill. Secondly, uh, there is a sleep epidemic that people are not getting enough sleep, and teens are no exception to that. Secondly, teens are uniquely um, positioned to have poor sleep, meaning that what happens when you get to be a teenager is your sleep structure starts to change. And you actually, your mind actually wants to sleep later in the evening and wants to continue to sleep longer in the morning. This is a natural brain change that happens for teens. The problem is that teens have to get up in the morning to go to school. So th this, this normal brain development is not a good match for what teens are required to do in the mornings. And then secondly, teens uh, are, I think many teens, if not most teens, are ex experiencing a lot more stress and pressure and higher expectations to perform, which all contributes to difficulty sleeping. And then the last piece about teens, which is really unique to teens, is that there's a lot uh, that the use of social media, that actually there's a lot of content, content and also interaction that occurs remotely with teens, which is very activating to their minds. And so all of these things come together for teens at a particular point in their development that make getting to sleep and staying asleep and having restorative sleep more difficult. Yeah, it makes sense. Hmm. So what does uh, therapy typically look like when people come to see you? You know, what, what do they tell you is going on typically? And then you get over some of the stuff you'll tell them to do. And then what happens? How long does it take for them to experience results? And then what do they tell you once they've done it? Well, see, that's great. That's the other um, great news about uh, CBT for insomnia is that for somebody, for a teen who actually doesn't 
um, have a great deal of worry in just doing sleep restriction, they can start to sleep better in a, in a matter of uh, three to four sessions, right? That's how powerful actually being able to restructure their sleep routine can be. Now, if teens are also big time worriers, it can, worriers, it can take longer because we also have to in, include skills to help them with their worry. Right? But even then, you're looking at a treatment that typically is probably eight to 10, probably no more than 12 meetings. Um, it's, CBTI is a very effective treatment. And also the great thing about CBTI, it's a very durable treatment that once a, a teen or an adult um, benefits from CBTI, they're likely to, they've learned skills that will help them uh, uh, deal with inevitable sleep disruptors and therefore not develop insomnia again. And, and let me rephrase that. It's like, like you were saying, is that we all experience sleep disruptors. So somebody who has had an experience with insomnia will have sleep disruptors again. What, what CBTI for insomnia does teaches skills to lessen the likelihood that when they have a sleep disruptor, that they're going to fall into these unhelpful patterns that are going to result in insomnia uh, again. Well, that's great. I'm glad it's so effective. I, I would think this would be a very difficult situation that a lot of people just wouldn't respond to because of the mental game that they have to play. But I mean, what, how often are you successful and how often are you not able to help people? I, I would say that anyone who is really highly motivated to engage in, in, in this treatment will get better, right? Some people, particularly teens, uh, they, some of the things that we would ask them to, well, I don't know about particularly teens, but teens, some of the things that we would ask them to do, they're going to be reluctant to do, which is like to actually put their screens to bed an hour before lights out. So if they're willing to actually do the pieces of the treatment, there's a high likelihood that they're going to get better. But probably the thing that is the biggest impediment for at least teenagers in actually um, uh, benefiting from cognitive therapy for insomnia is, is this, their attachment to their screens in the evenings. And that is a tough sell to teenagers. Um, but if a teenager uh, is willing to do that and we can talk them through and we can help them understand this and we can do some experiments around screen use and its effect upon their sleep, then if we can get them to do that, then they're likely to benefit from from this as well. And the last piece is that, you know, CBTI, is, cognitive behavior therapy, has a long track record of many, many uh, research studies that, that demonstrate its effectiveness for a wide range of problems like anxiety disorders and mood disorders. Insomnia is just one of the latest, you know, applications of cognitive behavior therapy. So we have years and years of research that demonstrate that cognitive behavior therapy is, a, is uh, effective for the treatment of a variety of different order uh, problems. And so we're accustomed to working with these problems. And what we know from CBTI is that, it's, that the research tells us this treatment will help when other treatments will not help. And when it comes to insomnia, there's plenty of research also that shows that sleep medications actually are not as effective as cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. They're simply not as effective. They're, they're, they might be fine for someone who hasn't developed insomnia, 
someone who's just having some difficulty sleeping, but someone who's actually developed primary insomnia, sleep medications are not effective in solving that problem. Well, we'll get into sleep medications in a second, but I just had an idea. I don't know if it's silly or not, but what if you created a um, a phone app that, I don't know, it's like an electronic baby that a teen would have to take care of. Like, you know, an hour before the teen's supposed to go to sleep, the phone alerts them and says, hey, it's me, your, you know, your phone baby. Start, uh, you know, I don't want to see that blue light, so please, you know, install this app and, you know, put red light on me and then, you know, please turn me off. It's time for me to go to sleep and when it wakes up, you know, you know please make sure I get the yeah. natural light, that kind of stuff. I, there, there are, there is a, uh, one or two sleep uh, apps uh, on, on the market, but not something like that. The thing is that most, most devices these days um, have the, the blue light options. But the problem is that it's, you know, the research suggests that actually it's not so much the light as it is the content that is activating the mind. So, you know, if, if a teen is playing a video game and they're using blue light, but that video game is very activating for their mind, that light is going to play little or no role in their mental activity. It's the game. If they're on, if they're on, you know, social media and they're engaged in conversations and through social media that are very interesting and exciting, um, uh, then it probably doesn't matter that much what the light is doing. So really it's about getting teens to, as part of their wind down routine, to go off devices. Um, uh, and uh, the other piece about this that complicates it for teens um, is that uh, when they look at uh, their parents who are on devices at night, and then their parents are telling the teen to go off the device at night, parents, you know, teens look at this and think, well, why do I have to go off social media when you're on social media? So really, the thing that's going to convince a teen the most to go on a device diet is going to be a family who's willing to go on a device diet. Okay, it makes a lot of sense. That's good. Um, in, in talking about sleep aids, um, from what I know, sleeping pills just make you unconscious, but they don't really help you sleep. You're not in like a, a restorative sleeping state. You're just yeah. like literally knocked out. Is that the case? And you know, what that's you say pretty about much the case. Aids? It depends upon the sleep med, but I think that's that's probably relatively accurate. The other thing about sleep medications, again, depending upon the sleep medication, is that they actually influence the sleep structure. So not only are you not you're not you're not really sleeping because you're not actually going through the normal sleep process um, because many many of these sleep medications disrupt that sleep process. And, um, and then some of the sl- uh, sleep medications that you take uh, really do knock you out. And then in the morning, you, uh, the person is a bit confused about like, am I still tired because I didn't get enough sleep? Or am I groggy and sedated from the medication that I used? Okay. Um, and then those effects uh, of the grogginess or the sedative effects of the medication, they can carry that through into the day to some degree. Some people are quite sensitive to that. Mm, that's true. Um, are there, so there's sleep medications, but are there sleep aids that 
you've seen are effective or not effective, like melatonin or 5-HTP or these, you know, these natural sleep cocktails with GABA and valerian root and all that stuff? I, uh, I am not well versed in these um, naturoceuticals. The, most, the one that's been studied the most has been melatonin. And um, I, I certainly, you know, encourage people to try melatonin, particularly melatonin in response to jet lag. Um, there is some evidence that that can be helpful. Um, but if you have something like a chronic primary insomnia, melatonin is not going to help you. If you, are, if you have a, a sleep disruptor, but you don't, you're not, you don't have a tendency and you don't have a tendency to develop insomnia. Like if I travel to the East Coast and travel back, I might have some, uh, that's a sleep disruptor, I might have some sleep-related difficulties for a period of time. Melatonin might help me get back on, on my standard sleep schedule. But if I develop insomnia, melatonin will not be sufficient. Okay. And then the um, the sleep ritual you talked about, how long should that ritual and setup be? Is it a half hour? You mean like a ru- the, sleep, like- the sleep routine? Do you mean the sleep routine? It, exactly, yeah, the sleep routine. Yeah, the right. wind down routine. How long does that need to be to be effective? Can it be really short or is it should be an hour, hour and a half or a half hour? I, I typically recommend that the wind down routine be at least an hour. Um, uh you know, so you can. I sometimes will uh, experiment with with my patients around that. Some people might re- benefit from less time, but it, but it really is about starting with at least an hour and then working toward perhaps less time. Um, but most of the people that I work with really re- their minds require more time to calm down. And uh, then uh, 10 minutes, right? Um, if you don't have insomnia, um, then you probably uh, do not, are, are not prone to high mental arousability. One of the things that, that we inherit, we inherit a lot of things uh, genetically that, uh, that um, influence our sleep. One of them is whether our, what are called our chronotypes. You know, are you a night owl or are you a morning lark? Morning lark. If you're a morning lark, you get you tend to get up early and you feel great. If you're a night owl, you tend not to feel sleepy until late in the e- the evenings. Typically, that is inherited. That is genetic. Another thing that we inherit is a r- mental arousability. Um, that genetically, some of us. Uh, are more easily aroused than others. And so often people with insomnia have greater mental arousability. And what that means is that, you know, they're, they're asleep, but it takes very much less for them to awaken than someone with low arousability. And so there are a number of factors that we just, we just inherit. And then it's about kind of like working around that. So somebody with high mental arousability would re- would require, I think, a longer wind down routine. Someone with less mental arousability, maybe not as much. Okay, makes sense. Um, what what happens if you have someone that uh, is going to sleep at you know hours that they don't like? They're getting tired super early and they're going to bed super early and getting up super early. They don't like it, or they're going to bed really late and they want to go to bed earlier. Any strategies for shifting their sleeping hours? Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
Absolutely. This is what you're speaking to here is what's called sleep restriction, which is basically identifying what the person, what their lights out time that the person wants and what their get out of bed time um, the person wants that works with their life, you know, um, and then working with the person to actually adjust their sleep to that, to, to those two posts. So this takes time and it's often done in steps, but if those two posts are moving around, you know, lights out time and get out of bed time, then the person's sleep will be poor. The quality of their sleep will be poor. And so really it comes down to helping the person decide what these two posts are going to be and then adjusting their sleep over time to match those two posts, meaning that with those two posts, they are uh, generally asleep during that period of time. Now, having said that, sometimes people, uh, many times people with insomnia um, will have, uh, 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 like particularly like with older adults, um, typically with older adults, their sleep efficiencies are like 80%. Person without insomnia, normal person without insomnia, their sleep efficiencies are 90%. What that means is that, you know, that uh, 90% of the time someone's in bed, they're asleep. And the reason that for older adults, sleep efficiency is, is poorer is that they have greater arousability. They tend to awaken more easily um, or they awaken more often. Um, and then, uh, then what happens is that also people don't adjust their sleep routine to actually their true sleep need. So older adults, actually many times require less sleep. As we age, our minds actually require less sleep. So you might have, you might have been an eight-hour-a-night sleeper, and then you get into your 70s, and you actually don't require eight hours anymore. Maybe you require seven hours of sleep, um, but, the, but you think that you should be getting eight hours of sleep, and so you will stay in bed uh, longer to get eight hours of sleep. Those are the kinds of decisions that people make that set them up to develop insomnia. Really, if, if your mind and body only require seven hours of sleep, then be in bed only for seven hours. Okay, makes sense. Well, very good. So, um, you know, we're at the end of the time. What, so what are some resources for listeners that, you know, obviously are having trouble sleeping? Where can they find out about CBTI? Where can they get your workbook? You know, how can they get in contact if they want to? Um, well, in terms of the workbook, uh, there are, uh, you know, you can get them, uh, you can buy their workbook on Amazon.com or Borders. So you can buy the workbook there. Um, there is uh, a website if you're interested in cognitive behavior uh, therapy for insomnia. There's a website um, through uh, the University of uh, 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 Penn Behavioral Health, University of Pennsylvania. Um, you can get more information on CBTI there. Um, you can also uh, uh, check out resources in terms of uh, the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Program at the University of Pen uh, Pennsylvania. Um, there are uh, more and more practitioners, uh, cognitive therapy uh, practitioners, are becoming are getting trained in CBTI. Um, what you want to do, though, is you want to make sure 
that the person who is providing you with treatment for insomnia has been trained to provide CBTI. Um, and there are certifications and, and treatments for, for people. Well, very good. Well, Michael, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, things will be a big benefit to anyone that uh, has problems sleeping, which is everyone in the world at some point or another. So thanks for uh, Absolutely, out. Rich. That's absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Everyone will have some difficulty sleeping at some point in their life. Not everyone develops mm. insomnia. But many of the things actually in, in the CBTI, even if you don't have insomnia, it can be helpful to you to actually uh, get back on track if you have a sleep disruption. So thank you so much for you know, inviting Monique and I to participate. And um, I'm hoping that this has been useful to your listeners. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.